0: Hi everybody, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week we're doing an archive show. This is a Boomer Boulevard show that we first broadcast back on the 23rd of April in 2018. Hope you enjoy it.
1: It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon.
2: I better get it out of the safe now.
3: I'm ready, Chester.
1: I'm ready whenever you are, Mr. Dillon.
3: All right, let's go.
0: Chester made tacos, and oh boy, do they smell good! Chester, those smell great. I mean, these are these are the authentic tacos. I mean, these are the soft tacos, you know, with the, with the white corn tortillas, and uh, oh yeah, what is it like a flank steak? Or, yeah, and it's shredded. Oh, with the right spices. Oh my, and the homemade guac to put on there. Oh and 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 the jack cheese. Oh man, that looks good,
4: Chester. Mm.
0: Oh, he's got refried beans too and rice. Oh man. <laughs> well, come on in everybody and uh, grab a seat, grab a plate. Chester says there's plenty for everybody. Man, that looks good. Well, welcome. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. This is Bob Bro and this is the old-time radio show where we play shows we actually remember from when we were kids because we're baby boomers. Some of these shows ended up on television. And we may remember them from television, but many of them we remember listening to on the radio. What's the lineup tonight? Well, tonight we have an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar. And it's kind of a lighthearted episode. And I like those sometimes. We're going to follow that up with an episode of um, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Which, amazingly, we have never played on the Boomer Show before. And their guest on the show tonight is Liberace. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And we're going to follow that up with an episode of Gunsmoke that has a, something unique in it. Something Chester does that I don't think he did in any other episode of Gunsmoke. So you look forward to that. So why don't you come on? We're eating on the patio, Chester says. He's got plates set up out there. So grab a plate. Uh, Find yourself someplace comfortable to sit, grab yourself something to drink, because we are going to get started in just a minute. to start things off this week with a little radio noir, but one with uh, maybe a little lighter touch. This is an episode of Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar, but it's an episode that you really can't take very seriously because it's just sort of a collection of unique characters and I won't say funny situations, but well, you'll see. It's lighthearted, let me just say it that way. This one was originally broadcast on June the 21st back in 1958 over CBS. It's entitled The Virtuous Mobster Matter. has a pretty good cast. Of course, Bob Bailey is Johnny. Among the uh, mobster fellows that you're going to run into is Gil Stratton Jr. Now, Gil Stratton was a friend of old-time radio. He was in many old-time radio programs, usually playing a youngster, a, a teenager. Having been brought up and raised in Los Angeles, in the L.A. area, in Long Beach, I remember Gil Stratton from being the sports announcer on Channel 2 in Los Angeles, CBS, KNX, uh, then later KCBS, but it was KNX, I think, still when I left, KNXT, when I left uh, California. And uh, Gil Stratton was on there as their sports announcer for many years. I think he started in... Uh, 50s, if I'm not mistaken, and went all the way through, I think it was to 86 when he retired. And then he went to Hawaii, actually bought a radio station over there, but got a little antsy, I guess. He wanted to get back behind the mic. And so he returned to LA and this time to KNX Radio, where he had also done work before and stayed with them until like 1997 or something like that. And then uh, then he retired He was 86 when he died in 2008. My goodness, that's been 10 years ago. I remember when that was announced. So anyway, I always have a fondness whenever I hear an episode of any show that has Gil Stratton in it. All right, let's go back to June the 21st, 1958 for yours truly, Johnny Dollar and the Virtuous Mobster Matter. (laughs)
5: Hollywood. It's time now for. Johnny Deller.
4: Hi there, Johnny. This is your
5: old pal, Lefty. Lefty?
2: Well, sure. You remember Lefty Stemper. Huh? You know, down here, Invite You. Virtue? V-I-R-G-U, Invite You, South Carolina. Oh, sure. Yeah, you remember me and the boys, we occupied this caraway plantation yeah. out here on the Petey River. Well, sure, of course. Listen, are you having trouble again with old man caraway? Oh, no, sir, not a bit. And you know how we stopped them, me and the boys, from making trouble for us? Oh, Lefty? We bought them out, that's how. <laughs> yeah, we give them 100 G's for the place, cash
3: money. Now we own a
2: whole entire plantation. Well, good for you. But now, what's your problem? Well, Johnny, we fixed this place up real nice since you've
3: seen it. You know, we spent a lot of
2: dough on it. So? So we want to buy a lot of new insurance on it. Oh, well, then hop on over to Georgetown and see your old friend Joe Picatello about it. Old friend, huh? After all, he's your insurance agent. Yeah, is he? Well, sure, of course he is. Didn't he send you all the other insurance you... Lefty, has something happened to Joe? Yeah, only I don't know what it is. What do you mean? Well, that's just it. I don't know. I I talked to him on the phone, asked him to come out here. He says, okay. But he don't come. You think somebody's knocked him off? Then I call him again. He says, okay, again. He'll be right over. But he still don't come. Well, have you gone over to Georgetown to see him, to see what's the matter? Five, six, maybe even half a dozen times. But every time he ain't dead. Lefty, I don't get it. That's what I'm trying to tell you. There's something wrong about it, Johnny. And if I were you, I'd come down here and find out. You know something? I
6: think you're right. Bob Bailey and the exciting adventures of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. And now, Act One of yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
2: <laughs> Expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to the Continental Insurance Company Home Office, New York, New York. Following is an account of expenses incurred during my investigation of the virtuous mobster matter. Spence account item one, $7.85, trained to New York City and taxi to the office of Continental Insurance Company. Fortunately, my contact there, Ben Orloff, was in. Come in, Mr. Dollar, come in. Thanks, how Sit are down. you? Sit down. Oh, thanks. Now, Mr. Orloff... Wait a minute, uh, don't tell me you never received that check for your services down in South Carolina. Oh, yes, I got that. Why, Why I... I had that mailed out to you nearly two months ago. Yes, I said I got it. I, uh... Oh, Oh, good. Incidentally, I thoroughly enjoyed your report on that case, the Village of Virtue matter you called it. Uh, yes, so I... why a group of ex-gangsters should decide to settle in a town called Virtue, I'll never understand. Well, they... were they really behaving themselves as your report indicated, or had they been using that old plantation for a sort of hideout? Their records have been clean down there for over twenty years now. Is that so? Well, <laughs> well, uh, maybe the answer to organized crime is to give all those fellows a nice, quiet plantation to live on. Yes. Though I must say that when our agent down there, Joseph Picatello, It's about Joe that I've come to talk I to I must say that I was a bit concerned when I found Joe had sold policies to characters like Lefty Stemper and Bully Magoon and Flippy Lack of Mr. Mr. Orlard... Why, those were the very sort of men that Thomas E. Dewey chased out of New York when he was D.A. some years ago. Mr. Orlard... That was before Dewey became governor, you know. So naturally, I... Uh, what were you going to say about Joe Picatelli? Have you heard from Joe recently? No, no, I don't think I have now that you mention it, Because I Why? just talked over the phone. Wait. You must understand one thing, Mr. Dollar. What's that? Our office down there in Georgetown is probably the smallest one we have in the whole country. Joe really doesn't handle much business for us, you know. Yes, I understand. I understood that when I talked to him in April. If it weren't for those those mobsters over in it's Virtue... Those mobsters, Mr. Orland. Well, if it wasn't for them and some of the townspeople to whom we've issued policies, I'd... Mr. Dollar... Has something happened to Joe Picatello? That's what I want to find out. Because now that I think
7: about it. Excuse me. Miss Bailey?
4: Yes, Mr.
2: Orloff.
7: Did you ever get a reply on the Harmon policy from Mr. Picatello in our Georgetown office?
8: No, sir. I've written Mr. Picatello several times. Though.
2: Thank you. Dollar? We wrote Joe about that Harmon matter over four weeks ago. Well, didn't it occur to you to phone him and find out why he hasn't answered you? But it involves such a small policy that. Uh, Yes. Perhaps I'd better try to call him. Miss Bailey? Wait. Yes? Uh, nothing. What? I said nothing. Well, Mr. Dollar? Well, Mr. Roloff, if something has happened to Joe Pegatello... Well, look, instead of spreading the alarm, how about if I quietly run on down there? But have you reason to believe something wrong has happened to him? Only from what his clients down there at the plantation have told me over the phone. You... You think perhaps some of his old gangland enemies have got to him? After 20 years, I don't know. But if you'll okay my expense account, I'll go down there and see. Well, now, Mr. Dollar. And if you won't, I'll go down there anyway. But there's the danger, too. This might be a very dangerous. Let me. Let me hear from you as soon as you can, Mr. Dollar. Expense account item two, twenty-eight dollars even. Transportation and incidentals, New York City to Georgetown, South Carolina. It was late when I pulled into the prosperous little southern community. It was dark, pitch dark. Item three, fifty bucks deposit on a rental car. Item four, seventy cents for a sandwich and a coke at an all-night diner. Then I drove over to Joe Picatello's on a side street near the park. The small frame building that served as both office and living quarters for Joe was dark. But in the hope he might be asleep in his little apartment up above, I knocked. <laughs> No answer Until I was about to turn and go back to my car There was the sound of a door slamming somewhere inside But still no light showed I knocked again Then faintly I heard footsteps approaching But why hadn't Joe turned on a light in there?
9: Yeah? What do you want?
2: Joe! Yeah? Joe, open up, it's Johnny Dollar Johnny who? Johnny Dollar, insurance investigator, you know Investigator? That's what you said? Are you kidding? What's the matter with you, pal? Open up.
4: Yeah. Sure.
2: Hiya, Joe. What's the idea of no lights in here? You forget to pay your bill or something? Maybe. What do you want? What? Investigator, you said Willie. Did you hear that? Willie? Yeah, I heard. And what is this? Don't move. Huh? Well, oh, no, you don't. All right, Willie, I got his gun. I hit him again. Yeah. Again. Once more. Okay, okay. There he is. i like a light. Yeah what do you want i should do with him now huh? you're crazy Willie. you mean you
1: don't know
2: okay but if i blast him here it's gonna make a lot of noise and if anybody listen hey it's a car coming down the street investigator you said so he wouldn't be working alone come
4: on out the back way but i know who's going to get out of here
9: I thought you will see no lights on, Lefty. Well, maybe
10: Joe's went to bed, if he's there.
9: He didn't answer the phone when you c- c- called him.
2: Listen, Flippy, Johnny Dollar told me I should come down here and look for Joe myself. So come
1: um, on,
8: we'll see.
9: Oh, 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 whatever you say, Lefty. Only I the, thought that uh, Johnny
8: was coming down here himself. To... Huh?
10: Hey, look, this door's open.
9: Yeah, yeah you you look what, what, what I stepped on.
2: Joe. Joe, what happened to you?
9: That, that, that ain't Joe. It's, it's Johnny Dollar.
2: Johnny Dollar. Hey, you're right, Flippy. Somebody must... Let's... Oh, get away. Oh, Johnny. Johnny. Johnny, it's me. It's me, Lefty. Lefty.
8: Me, 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 me.
2: Flippy. Johnny, okay? You all right? Yeah, right. oh. I... Holy who? Who
8: done, done this to you, Johnny? Yeah, we'll
2: murderize him. Hey, Flippy, turn on some lights. Yeah, yeah,
8: sure. What the hell happened in here?
2: You know who done this to you, Johnny? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was old. Hey, come here, Flippy. Help me lay him up on the sofa. Easy, easy.
4: Yeah, easy,
2: Here, here now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, Johnny, listen to me. Who, Johnny? Who?
8: Yeah, 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 Johnny.
2: I can't believe it, but uh, I could see him in the light from the street. Who? Oh, oh. Joe. Uh, what? Joe Pigattello. Smoky Pigattello done this to you. Another guy with him called him Willie.
11: Willie the
9: Lump.
2: Why? Why did he do it? I don't know. Acted very strange when he came to the door. But I don't get it. He was my pal. He was your pal. And well,
9: Willie the Lump with him. That—that's that, what I don't get.
2: It means he's went back. That's what it means. He's went back to the old racket, dope smuggling. No, no, no. Yeah, him and Willie the Lump was partners in the old days. But for 20 years, Joe's b- b- been straight, Lefty.
9: Like you and me and Bully McGoon.
2: Yeah, for 20 years, you and me and Bully, the only guns we ever used was for hunting, for killing snakes. But not no more. What do you mean, Lefty? Joe Pigatello done this to you, Johnny. It means only one thing. There's only one thing we can do. No. He's right, Johnny. Oh, no, lefty. Yeah, Johnny. First we take you back to the plantation where you get all right again. Oh, no, listen to me. Then we find Joe Pigatello. Flip and bullying me. And when we do. Huh? Well, now, what are you pumps doing here, huh? I. Joe! That's right. Who'd you expect? What's the big idea? All right, don't move. Because, Joe, I'm gonna blast your head off. atmosphere was tense there in Joe Picatello's office in Georgetown, South Carolina, would be the understatement of the week. After the beating I'd taken from the ex-gangster and one of his pals, my old friends Lefty and Flippy had come in and found me there. And they couldn't understand why Joe had done this to me, unless... It means he's went back, that's what it means, went back to the rackets.
9: Oh, Willie, the lump was with him. Him
2: and when Willie was partners in the old days, dope, not so the two of them swore to get Joe, and then suddenly we looked up to see someone standing in the doorway.
9: Joe!
2: It was Joe Picatello. That's right. Now,
9: who'd you expect
2: it? What the. All right, don't move. Because, Joe, I'm gonna blast your head off. Oh, now put that thing down, Lefty.
8: Don't move! What is this, Slippy, A gag or
2: something? Is it a gag what you done to Johnny Dollar? Huh? Johnny. I said one move and I'll give it to you. Johnny. Turn around, Joe, or I'll shoot you in the back, you dirty. What did they do to you, Johnny? Listen, Joe. Lefty. Flippy, I'll kill you for this. What are you talking about? you dirty. Wait, rat wait, Lefty. Johnny's my pal, like you used to be before you went back in the rackets. Went back in the rackets?
9: Yeah, yeah, with that, that doopound with Willie the Lump.
2: What do you know about Willie the Lump? Plenty, now that you're back with him. You're crazy. It's no good, Joe, because Johnny recognized you. You and Willie the Lump when you worked them yeah, over. I tell you that I had... 20 to... years, you and Bully and Flippy and me, we showed we could do it straight. We could be respectable. Me and the boys at the plantation, you down here... But now you spoiled it. You're ruining it for all of us. Look, will you listen?
8: So don't move.
2: We made a deal. You and me and the boys. 20 years ago. If anybody slips, anybody breaks up our respectable life, he gotta go. Was that the deal? Yeah, yeah, that was the deal. But you, you don't know what you're talking about when you say I'm going back. All right, your... so you're your lousy scum. You not only go back, you do this to Johnny Dollar. My friend, the guy who believed lefty. in us. Lefty. So for that, you gotta go. Lefty, listen. Now, Joe... Right. Lefty. Give me a gun, Lefty.
9: Uh, no, Johnny. That, that, that was
2: the deal. You ever use a gun on a man, you'll go up for the rest of your life. Johnny, it's for you. I'm killing them. Hand it over, Lefty. Okay, thanks. You see, it it wasn't Joe who worked me over. Why? Well, well, I... I thought it was. It did look like him. It, it sounded like and him. Then it was him. Look at his hands, his face, His clothes. Is this the man I fought with in here five minutes ago? Sure, maybe I did get the worst of it with two of them on top of me. But believe me, I cut them up some, too. He's right, Lefty. Yeah. Yeah, but then I don't... Look, if it wasn't him... The twin. The twin. You're right, Lefty. It must be the twin. The, the twin here? All right, boys. Let me in on it, too, will you? Shep Larko, the twin, they called him. That's what the law called him. Called him and Joe, the twins. Because they looked like each other. They talked like each other. Yeah. There was always the alibi for each other. But, but, but what's Shep Larko doing here? I, I, I can't tell you, Flippy. Not yet. All right, Joe. All right. I believe you. about not working over Johnny here? Because of what he says about, well, about you know, me and I being must up. But if you and Shep are back in the wreck, I'm not, Lefty. That's straight. No. All right, then tell me. Where you been? I, I, I can't tell you. Three, four weeks now. We don't know where you are. The insurance company don't know where you are. Well? I, I can't tell you. Now, now listen. Uh, you listen. You listen. If Shep and Willie have been here, they'll be coming back. Why? Yeah, Joe, why? I can't tell you. I, I, I can't tell you. Huh? All right. Listen. We're listening, Joe. Uh, the, the Secret Service. Huh? Well, after those killings up in Baltimore. During that smuggling, Joe? Yeah, Johnny. They knew the twins, Shep Larko and Willie. Well, the boys in Washington knew they did it. But they didn't know where to find him. Well, go on, Joe. So they sped the way. Uh, the Secret Service sped the way. That yeah. I knew where Ship and Willie were. That, that I would lead them to him. You knew where he was, huh? No, but the law boys knew that would flush him out. Get Shep and Willie out looking for me, gunning for me. And the Secret Service didn't keep you cover? Yeah, until today, back in Washington. But I talked to you on your phone right here. Oh, the line was rigged through to Washington. You said, until today, Joe. Yeah, because Shep and Willie didn't show. The law boys had to make him show. So then they sent you here as living bait? Yeah. And they passed the word that you'd be here? That's it, Johnny. That's why Shep and Willie were waiting here when you came. That's why they'll come back now that I'm here. Boy, if you stuck your neck out for the sake of going straight... I couldn't help myself. The the Secret Service rigged it on me. guy named Phillips. But now you're all in it. So, Flippy, turn out the lights. Yeah, and let's get out of here. Oh, no. What? Oh, listen, we was crooks, but never killers. But it's killers that's coming to get Joe. What do you mean, Lefty? But they won't... And they won't get you, Johnny. Sorry, Lefty, I can't move. Well, then we're staying. For you and Joe. Yeah, right. So turn out the lights for B. You're too late, boys. Shep. the the twin. That's right. Your old pal, Shep Locko. Keep a ride on him, Willie. Don't worry, Shep. Investigator, huh, Dollar? Only a Secret Service, ain't it? Is it? I knew we should have killed you when we had you, Dollar. But we thought these boys driving up was reinforcements. <laughs> Reinforcements <laughs> We should have known the Secret Service wasn't that bright All right, Willie, frisk him while I keep this gun on him Sure No, none of you trying to Not dollar, we got his gun Oh, okay Just what do you intend doing, Chef? They're clean, Chef. What do you think? All right, Joe gets it first Put your gun up close so it don't make no noise Go ahead, Willie Yeah oh. <laughs> Oh, you've got them both. And I thought you couldn't move.
8: Yeah, but boy.
2: Thanks, Johnny. Thanks. Thank Lefty for giving me his gun when I asked for it, Joe. Oh. Hey, look. Any of you guys know a good doctor? Yeah. I've said it before and I say it again. In this insurance business... You never know what you'll run into. Expense account total including a flock of medical expenses and the trip back to Hartford, $174 even. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
6: Johnny Dollar, starring Bob Bailey, originates in Hollywood and is produced and directed by Jack Johnstone, who also wrote today's story. Heard in our cast were Gene Tatum, Jack Crucian, Les Tremaine, Billy Halep, Frank Gerstle, and Gil Stratton, Jr. Be sure to join us next week, same time and station, for another exciting story of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. This is Roy Rowan speaking.
0: From June the 21st, 1958, that was Bob Bailey as Yours Truly, Johnny Dollar and the Virtuous Mobster Matter. So we're going to dust uh, old Johnny off and put him back in the vault, but he'll be back and we'll look forward to hearing more of his, uh, what, what is it, the Adventure Packed Expense Account? Is that what it is? Yeah. A lot of people's favorite old-time radio show, especially people kind of of my generation, because Johnny Dollar was on late enough in the run. For a while, it came on late afternoons, as I recall. And a lot of us remember hearing it when we were kids. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
12: KNX Radio, Los Angeles. Tomorrow's the big day. Yes, tomorrow's CBS Radio's Red Header Day as the redhead, Arthur Godfrey, returns to lead the parade of merriment and music on Arthur Godfrey Time. But Arthur's not the only reason tomorrow's going to be a big day on CBS Radio. That genial gentleman, Gary Moore, is coming back on CBS Radio with his own brand-new daytime show. Starting tomorrow, you can enjoy the unique Gary Moore brand of blandishment five days a week, Monday through Friday. Tomorrow's the day Arthur Godfrey returns and Gary Moore starts his new show. Don't miss them. Come
13: on and go, go, go in a Plymouth. A go-kart through and through. You really go, go, go for a Plymouth. And Plymouth will
14: really go for you.
7: Fifteen minutes behind the wheel. That's all it takes to convince you that the 59 Plymouths really got it. Got the newest of new design, new sport car handling ease, new fury performance, new get-up-and-go. Just tell your Plymouth dealer you want to sample the go. Then you turn the key and Plymouth's new Golden Commando V8 leaps into life. Now you just push a button and go on your way to the most fun-filled 15 minutes of your driving life. See your Plymouth dealer. Take your fun drive in the 59 Plymouth real soon.
14: You really go, go, go
3: for a Plymouth, and Plymouth
0: will really go for you. Folks, you're very fortunate. I dug deep in my archives and I found this outstanding, really educational interview with Dr. Daryl Dexter, who is one of the foremost authorities in the world on the hooping crane.
15: We have uh, Dr. Daryl Dexter here with us, who's added a new dimension to uh, his expertise. It's uh, his last appearance here. And uh, I think it's uh, over into the hooping crane field. I I want to, Doctor, could you tell us uh, a little bit about the hooping crane? Yes, well, it was nearly uh, extinct some years ago, Ray. In 1937,
16: there were only 14 of them, and now there are some 74. They have white plumage with the red-crowned head and black tips on their wings and their tall, majestic birds standing some 110 stories <laughs> above the street <laughs> on New York City's lower west side. The Twin Towers certainly are buildings to be proud of with elevators that Wait. travel at amazing speeds. <laughs>
6: Wait
15: a minute, minute. Uh, Doctor. You have me confused. Uh... What, what are we talking about here? <laughs> oh, you
16: asked me about... Whooping cranes. My, my next expertise is going to be on the Twin Towers, and I'm, I'm always working on, ahead on these. Oh, I see. All right. We'll you never, never know when ahead. you're going to be invited on programs and, and have to talk so about something. So you always something.
15: have one expertise <clears throat> subject ahead. In
16: 1937, there were 14 whooping cranes... They live in Canada in the summer and migrate 2,500 miles to the Aranzas Refuge in Texas in the winter. They're a tall, majestic bird. Our tallest, as a matter of fact. Well, now, uh, did you say there were 2,500 of them? That doesn't seem like they're too endangered. No, there are 74 of them now. 2,500 is the number of miles they migrate from Canada to uh, Texas
15: at the Aransas Refuge. And uh, they eat... They're rednecks, you say? No. No.
16: No, they have red-crowned heads. Their plumage is white, uh, mainly, but they do have black wingtips. They eat snails and shrimp, blue-plate crabs, and some weeds. And the whoop can be heard up to half a mile. And uh, are they a big bird? Yes, they're they're the tallest bird. The tallest one we have here
15: in America and and, uh, very majestic. Well now, uh, uh, where do they get these uh, blue plate specials they eat?
16: No, there again, you're wrong. It's blue plate crab is one of the uh, sea shellfish, which they do eat along with snails, uh, shrimp, And uh, some plant life Uh You can hear the whoop up to half a mile I believe I told you Do they communicate with one another? Do they make a sound? They make (laughs) They make a large, uh, loud uh, whooping sound In that way they do communicate with one another In the latest census uh, There were 68 adult uh, whooping cranes And 6 young whoopers
15: Curious (laughs) It's Curious is stay in one place. They don't, often birds fly back and forth uh, between seasons, and they stay in this Aransas uh, Refuge. Uh, what was that, did you say?
16: No, that's the case with the whooping crane. They migrate from Canada, where they spend the summers at Great Slave Lake, uh, to the Aransas Refuge in Texas, Texas. where they spend their winters.
15: Oh, well, I, uh, I think... Uh, I think we all know a good deal more now about the whooping uh, crane uh, than we did a few moments ago. Uh, I want to thank you, Dr. Dex. It's always right. a pleasure, and I know we'll be interested to have you back here to talk about the Twin Towers sometime. Oh, really? Thank you.
0: That was, of course, Bob and Ray. And the name of that routine was Dr. Daryl Dexter, whooping crane expert. We're going to hear a little bit more from Bob and Ray before the show's over. was Billy Joe and the Checkmates. The name of that song was what else? Percolator.
5: Something familiar.
13: Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight.
5: Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight.
13: Bring on the lovers, liars and clowns.
5: Situation, no complications. Nothing potentious or polite. Ready tomorrow, Tomorrow. comedy
4: tonight.
0: (laughs) Well, on our comedy corner tonight, we are going to visit with Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. Unbelievably, I have never played one of their shows on uh, on Boomer Boulevard. And I don't know why, other than I, I have a hard time finding good quality shows from the late 40s and 50s. Uh, so that might be the reason. Good quality sound, that is. The, the shows themselves were excellent. But uh, anyway, th- this is a pretty good one. The guest is Liberace. This was originally broadcast back on... January the 17th, 1954. So by this time, Bergen and McCarthy had been uh, on radio for almost 20 years. He, he started off in vaudeville, but his real success came on the radio. Edgar Bergen had developed Charlie McCarthy as his uh, alter ego or his dummy uh, way back in the beginning of his career. And one night, he was hired by uh, Elsa Maxwell to perform at a party for Noel Coward in New York. Well, they were so successful, such a hit, Bergen and McCarthy, that Mrs. Maxwell recommended them for an engagement at the Rainbow Room. You know, that nightclub way up there at the top of 30 Rockefeller Center, right in the heart of uh, Manhattan? Well, it was at the Rainbow Room that two producers saw Bergen and Charlie perform and recommended them for a guest appearance on Rudy Valley's radio program. Their appearance on that show took place on December 17, 1936, and they were an instant hit. The following year, they were given a regular cast role on the Chase and Sanborn Hour. From that first appearance on Rudy Valley's show until their last performance, Charlie and Edgar were constantly on radio for over 19 years. They worked for various sponsors and they were on two different networks, but they were a constant on radio. And you know, it's funny, even though listeners knew that Edgar Bergen was providing Charlie McCarthy's voice, they still thought of Charlie as a genuine person. And maybe you will too. And by the way, do you remember Liberace? We'd have to talk about him on another show, but uh, I remember as a kid really liking Liberace. Now, later toward the end of his life, he became much more flamboyant. And I've often heard that he really wasn't a great pianist. He was more of a showman. But uh, I can remember as a kid really, really being entertained by him. And uh, I think you'll find him entertaining tonight. So here we go. From January 1954, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy with their guest, Liberace.
7: Lannell and Plus brings you The Edgar Bergen Show with Charlie McCarthy.
9: I'll clip you, say, help me, I'll move you down.
7: It's again for Edgar Bergen with Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer's Third, and Ray Noble and his orchestra, brought to you transcribed by the makers of famous Lanolin Plus products for softer, more youthful-looking skin and lovelier, more manageable hair. Tonight, our guest is Liberace. <laughs> And now, here is Edgar Bergen with Charlie McCarthy.
9: Oh, so if I had the
8: wings of an angel... Yes, yes, Charlie, uh, please, that's nothing to sing about. You ought to be ashamed of yourself, a boy your age, with a jail record. Just call me number 77682. Let's hope this incident doesn't get into the newspapers. Think of my standing in the community. Uh, Let's face it, Bergen. Your standing's already down to a squatting position. (laughs) Think of it. My boy in jail. Let's not call it jail. I like to think of it as a home away from home. Yeah. (laughs) Charlie, if you will tell me exactly what happened... I promise not to punish you. (laughs) Oh, you do love to set those booby traps for me, don't you? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you, Bergie. You see, a policeman went in for a cup of coffee and left his motorcycle standing outside with uh, the radio on, you see. Yes, I see. And? And uh, a call came over saying a girl was locked out of her house. Dressed only in her nightie, you see, yes. So you told the motor cop about it? No, I did not. I said to myself, I heard the call first, she's mine. Oh, (laughs) now... She sounded like my type. Yeah. From that brief description? No, from her brief attire. Oh, I... (laughs) Well, so? So, I felt it was my duty to take the motorcycle and investigate. When you're tempted like that, Charlie... You should always say, get thee behind me, Satan. I did, I did. And he got on the jump seat and we rode off together. (laughs) Oh, the siren was on and the throttle was open. Oh, gay life. We rode through red, green, and yellow lights so fast, I thought I was in the Aurora Boris Karloff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no, no, Charlie, that was wrong. Why didn't you listen to your conscience? Well, I couldn't. I was going faster than sound. Oh. Well, <laughs> uh, Just how fast were you going? What did the speedometer hand show? It showed nothing. It was too busy holding on. Oh, stop. <laughs> and then, then I heard the cops coming. So, I hid behind a billboard. <laughs> that was the wrong thing to do. Oh, it certainly was. Another cop was already hiding there. Yeah. <laughs> I'd a stinker. All right, all right, yes. Then you were trapped. Yeah. He dragged me off my motorcycle, slapped handcuffs on me. So I decided there was only one thing to do. Uh, What was that? Turn myself in.
11: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I say, Edgar and Charles, I don't want to be inquisitive or nosy. Well, then why are you? (laughs) No, but I've just heard the most wizard piece of gossip. Oh. Yeah. Is it true that Charles is a jail
8: foul? Jail foul, yeah. Shake hands with number 77682. Oh, no. Yeah, you can call me by my Nick number, 77. Seven. All right. <laughs> oh, but well,
11: no, really, Charles, you shocked me. Yeah. Uh, uh, did you have a good reason for being in jail? The best. The door was locked. Yeah.
8: <laughs> Ray, did you ever do any time?
11: Did I ever do what any time?
8: Yeah. Oh, forget it. Oh. <laughs> I got some advice for you, Ray. Yeah? If there's ever a price on your head... Yes? Take it. <laughs> Charlie, you're treating this entirely too lightly. After all, do you want to be a criminal? Oh, I don't know. What's your proposition? Oh, no. <laughs> Do you realize that this cost me $20 to bail you out? Well, you're a sucker for paying it. Yeah. They would have let me go anyway. They said I was a bad influence on the other criminals. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, our guest for the evening has made one of the most phenomenal rises to stardom in the history of show business. He only has one name but ten very talented fingers. And here he is playing beer barrel polka Liberace. penny for your thoughts. Boy, are you going to get gypped on that one, huh? Well, tell me, my country boy, how are things in down on the farm? Well, pretty good. Any new animals there? Yeah, pretty soon now. My nanny goat's going to have some little goatees. Oh, I see. She's expecting, eh? Expecting nothing. She's sure of it. Oh, I see. <laughs> Bartimer, uh, what what's that you have in your hand? Well, which hand? There are two of them, you know. Yeah. Well, one hand is empty. Oh, well, in that one, I ain't got nothing. Well.
4: <laughs>
8: but in this one, I got something I found. Uh, well, I found it in the street, and so I just picked it up. I see. Let me see it. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, it's one of those famous little statues of the three sitting figures. They're known as the three wise monkeys. Well? Yeah. Yes. Uh, what good does it do them to be smart when they ain't got their health? What do you mean they haven't got their health? One's got a toothache, one's got an earache, and the other's got sore eyes. No, no. <laughs> so the three monkeys that form that little statue illustrate a very important lesson. though? No? Yeah. Now, let's break it down. Okay, let's smash it all to pieces. Huh? <laughs> now, the first monkey always has his hands over his eyes. Do you know why? Well course. Now, this is just a guess. That's all right. I'd say he's a uh, nearsighted palm reader. No, no. (laughs) No, no, no. No. It's so he can see no evil. Oh, that's kind of pretty. Yeah. (laughs) so he can see no evil. I bet you two to one he peeks a little. No. (laughs) Oh, he represents see no evil. In other words, he can't see anything that's bad. Well, he can't see anything that's good either. (laughs) Well, we'll go on to the second monkey. Now, why does he have his hands over his ears? He's tired of listening to TV commercials now. He represents here no evil. You see, monkeys teach us not to be inquisitive about others. Well, then why are they always counting each other's fur? Well, I... (laughs) And we go on to the next one. His hands are over his mouth. Do you know why? He's got a weak stomach. No, no. no. So the last one represents speak no evil. Now I want you to be just like those three monkeys. You mean with my hands over my eyes and ears and over my mouth? That's right. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'd need six hands for that. You don't want a boy. You want a spider. (laughs) Now, the next time you hear someone spreading gossip, what will you do, Martimer? I'll, uh, I'll hold my nose. Oh, no. Why? Because anybody who does a thing like that is a real stinker. Oh, I...
4: (laughs)
7: Ladies and gentlemen, I'm sure you've all heard of the show, You Are There, which recreates the great events in history. Tonight, Charlie McCarthy wants to bring you his version of that program, and the great historical event to be recorded is...
8: The Discovery of Liberace.
7: (laughs) The scene opens in the office of one of the lesser-known music publishing companies struggling for recognition. And don't forget, you... Are there.
8: Hello, Charlie McCarthy Music Company, publishers of that new hit, the sheep song, You, You, You.
7: <laughs>
8: Who's this? Peter Potter. Oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, you can't do that to him, Pete. You can't. You can't.
7: Hey, what was that, sheep?
8: Well, one of our songwriters was just executed on jukebox jury Oh, that's the
7: eighth one we've lost this week
8: Yeah, all we got left is Liberace He's that new fella I hired, you Yeah, know. how's he doing? I don't know, let's find out Hey, Liberace, Irving B. Liberace Yes, Chief? Did you write a song for me yet? I've got a
13: great one for you, Chief It's dedicated to Terry Moore What's the use of a truce if they're gonna be meanies? And bar those crazy pink bikinis.
8: Liberace, I've heard a lot of good songs in my time.
13: Yes, yes, boss, yes, yes. But this one's really lousy.
4: <laughs>
8: Turn in your brother George, you're through.
11: Oh, how'd you do, you song publishing chaps? Yes... Yeah. If it's epidermis. I'm frigid, man. Do you excavate me? And all that sort of musical rot,
8: you know. I tell you, this ebb tide is bringing in everything. Yes. Now, look, crumpet brain, I'm a very busy man. What do you want? Well, old chap, you see,
11: my name is Ray Noble, and I've written a song I'd like to sing for you. Oh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. It's called Goodnight, Sweetheart. Yeah. That's a good title, isn't it? No. And it goes like this. Good night,
8: sweetheart. Until no, we no, meet. No. Uh, I'm sorry, sorry. That song will never make it, boy. <laughs> oh,
11: what a pity. You know, and I thought I had another ricochet romance.
9: Yeah. <laughs> now get out, you hear? Oh, get right, out.
8: Right. You, Liberace, back to your piano.
7: Hey, Chief, your head song plugger, Kirkwood, is here to see you. Well, good. I hope he has some news. Come
8: on in, Kirkwood. You, you,
5: you, you're as cute as a dish of lambs, stew. Oh.
8: Ooh,
5: steady stomach, steady.
8: Yeah, there's a lot to steady there, yeah. <laughs> Look, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Song uh, you're not bringing in any business. Well, you.
5: it's not my fault, boy. Our songs are just miserable. Oh. Now, who'd want to sing this one? There are so many holes in my mattress, it might as well be sprayed. <laughs> think it has something.
4: How
8: about those western tunes you were supposed to take over to Gene Autry? Oh,
5: I just couldn't do it to him, boy.
8: You couldn't do it? What do you mean? Well,
5: just look at these songs. Darling, will you come be my bride? It's cold in the stable since my pinto died. Ooh, <laughs> this is worse than taking the cure. Uh-huh. Hey, chief, I've
13: got it, I've got it, I've got it. Well, play it, play it, play it. <laughs> My heart says you love me My head says that you don't I'm waiting all the quiver Till I hear from my liver
8: Waiting to hear from your liver
5: I think I'll cut my throat yeah. Are
13: you fixed for blades?
8: Yeah. <laughs> oh, wait a minute, rag mop. <laughs> Look, Liberace, when I hired you, you said you knew music.
13: Well, I do, Chief. Why, well, I was a child prodigy. At the age of two, my father bought me a piano, and before I was three, I made over $400. Well, now, now that's good. That's good. How did you do it? I sold the piano.
5: (laughs) Now,
8: look, Kirkwood, I don't think you've been on the job, Frank. Oh, how
5: can you say that, boy? I've got all the music right here in my briefcase. See how heavy it is. (laughs)
8: What was that?
5: I got some classical stuff in there, too. (laughs) That was Beethoven's fifth.
8: It sounded more like the third movement from cognac. (laughs) Third movement from cognac. (laughs) You got a good ear, boy. So that's it, Kirkwood. You've been drinking on the job.
5: Please, boy, not so loud. My poor old mother would be heartbroken if she found out about this. He would. Sure, it's her bottle. Oh, wow.
8: <laughs> well, there he goes, baubles, bangles, and bottles. Uh, now let's look at this hit parade. E compare, That's amore, eh? Chief, why couldn't I get an Italian songwriter? That's the ticket, an Italian songwriter. Arrivederci, old lasagna. What?
4: Wow. I
11: am an Italian songwriter. Oh, no. Ah, I, I used to composition a song. Oh, you did. She's a ghost like this. Yes. Good night, senorita, till we meet sir over a
13: pizza.
8: Now you get out of here. Broken <laughs> down,
9: Luigi. If you ever come back,
13: i Chief, this time I've done it. Oh, good. I've written a new love song that will sweep the nation.
8: Sing Liberace.
13: Is it love or a sinus condition? <laughs> or I feel like I'm getting the flu. The bees are making honey, and I've got the hives I'm itching to come back to you. <laughs>
8: Great, great.
7: Oh, excuse me, Chief, but Peaches Hutton, the red-headed bombshell, is here to see you.
8: Oh, the famous singing star. Send her in, Libby. If she'll sing our new song, we're made. The
9: red-headed bombshell. Wow, I bet she's
8: dynamite. Oh, she is, yes. yes.
9: Pardon me, but could I have a seat? I'm bushed. <laughs> You're the red bombshell? That's right. I'm the bombshell. Oh. Of course, my fuse is just about shot. Yeah. How'd you like that? We were expecting Earth a kitten. We get Grandma Moses here. Oh, I'm pooped. Yeah. Walking up all those stairs knocked me out.
13: Why didn't you take the elevator?
9: Oh, I never take the elevator anymore. No? Why not? Well, I'm so close to going. I'm afraid to push the button marked up. <laughs> well, here you are, ma'am. I think
13: you better have a seat.
9: Well, thanks. You're cute. And look at those lovely teeth. Gee, I'd love to borrow them when I bite into my melba toes. <laughs> so you're the thing the singing star, huh? That's right. I used to dance too, but I had to give it up. Why? Well, in one performance, I kicked too high, and zing went the strings of my corset. <laughs> Heaven's the lily Saint Cyr. <laughs> but now, look, Peaches,
8: Liberace has written a new song which we think will just be great for you. Oh, goody, goody. Well, let's go, Liberace. Play your song. But, Chief, uh, it's getting dark. Turn on the lights. I'm sorry, Liberace. We didn't pay the electric bill.
13: Well, how can I see to play?
8: Well, uh, here, I will light a candle and... Put it on the piano.
13: Hmm. Piano by candlelight. Yeah. Oh, gee.
4: Hmm.
8: And there you are, folks. This was the beginning of Liberace. The candelabra maestro. The man who set music ahead 20 years and lighting back 50. Play, Liberace. Let's hear your big new Columbia release.
7: Gerbergen. I would like to thank Liberace
8: for joining us tonight. And before we go, here is our rural philosopher, Martimer, with Snurd's words for the birds. Oh, donut holes are not fattening. Thank you, Martimer. Until next
13: Sunday, then good night, everyone. (laughs)
7: Remember to listen to Edgar Bergen with Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer Snurk, Ray Noble, and the entire ensemble brought to you by and Plus. Tonight's Edgar Bergen show with Jack Kirkwood and Gloria Gordon was produced and transcribed in Hollywood by Sam Pierce, script by Norman Paul, Cy Rose, and Zeno Klinker. This is Bill Baldwin speaking.
15: This is the CBS Radio Network.
0: And that was the Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy Show, as originally heard back on January the 17th, 1954. And their guest was Liberace. That song he was playing at the end, that was Rachmaninoff, Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini, the 18th Variation. How would I know that, you ask? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't, but I was going crazy. I I knew... I thought it was a piece of classical music, but I really wasn't sure. So I ended up asking my good friend, Wendy Lee, who gave me the answer. Wendy is uh, quite the musician. She's the orchestra manager for the Muni, which is a very big deal here in St. Louis. She's the music director of the Maryville Symphony Orchestra. She uh, was one of the um, members of the Laclede Quartet here for many, many years, And so anyway, she is a professional musician extraordinaire and well-respected in the St. Louis area. But Wendy, (laughs) Fondy sent her an email, and I said, Wendy, I'm going crazy. I I can't think of the name of this tune. And she told me. That is how limited my knowledge is of classical music. At any rate, getting back to Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy, it was Bergen's skill as an entertainer especially his characterization of Charlie that carried their shows for so many years. Uh, For the radio program, Bergen developed other characters, notably, of course, the slow-witted Mortimer Snurd and the man-hungry Effie Clinker. But the star of the show through all those years remained Charlie, who was always presented as a highly precocious child, albeit a child in a top hat, a cape, and a monocle. Charlie was depicted as both debonair and as girl crazy. But one of the unique things was, since Charlie was a wooden dummy, he could get away with double entendres, which otherwise would have been impossible under the broadcast standards of that time. Oh, it was just really, truly amazing the popularity that Bergen had on the radio, especially since he was, after all, a ventriloquist. Now think about that a ventriloquist on the radio. No one could see Charlie or Mortimer or Elsie, nor could they observe Bergen's skill. Many critics were both surprised and puzzled at the success that they had on the radio. But successful they were, and they were successful for almost 20 years on the radio. And then, of course, he did go into television, was never as popular on television, made a number of motion pictures, most notably with W.C. Fields. Overall, just had a wonderful, wonderful career.
9: I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Mm
4: -hmm.
9: Grow apple
4: trees and and honeybees and snow white white turtle
8: turtle dove.
9: Like I like to teach, teach the world to sing. To sing, sing with me, the day of an epic drama.
0: Okay, we promise you some more, Bob and Ray, and we are going to go live with Biff Burns, who has a surprise guest, one of the really, truly world-class athletes. Biff, take it away.
16: My guest here in the sports room is a fellow named Big Steve Werbler. It's a name that you're going to be hearing a lot of because he's the world champion high jumper, and I want to welcome you to the sports room, Big
15: Steve. Well, uh, thanks. If, if it's great to be here. Uh, there's a correction there, though. Uh, you said I was the world champion uh, high jumper. Right. Actually, I'm the world champion low jumper.
16: Well, it can't be too much difference between the two events.
15: Uh, no, but the- what's your record in the low jump? Uh, I've jumped 57 feet 8 inches, which is about 50 feet farther in the record for the high jump. Well, that would
16: seem like there is a lot more difference between two events than we uh, have thought at first. Would
15: you care to explain it? Well, uh, sure. Uh, uh, you see, in high jumping, you stand in a low place, and you see how high up you can jump. Right. In low jumping, stand in a high place, see how far down you can jump.
16: You and I both know the answer to this next question, but for the, uh sake of the viewers looking in who may not, uh, would you care to comment on the whole thing?
15: Well, uh, it's pretty basic. Uh, actually, I might point out here, though, that if you jump from a high place and you get killed, and that jump does not count. See, that's why uh, my 57 feet 8 inches still stands as an all-time record. I should imagine.
16: Now, this may seem like an embarrassing question to throw at you, Big Steve, but isn't this kind of a dumb sport that would only, uh, only appeal to big lummoxes like yourself with uh, rocks in their head? Well, I guess you could
15: make a pretty good argument for that, Biff. But uh, personally, uh, I feel low jumping has it all over, high jumping. You see, in high jumping, you can uh, strain a muscle or hurt yourself on the jump up and break a bone on the fall down. Right. But in low jumping, all you have to worry about is what happens to you on the way down. Uh, I guess there's a certain amount of
16: logic to that, but I don't think... uh, I think it's too complicated for most of the viewers to understand. Now, you're trying to get uh, low jumping accepted as a major track and field
15: event, is that right? Even in the Olympics? That's right. There's a promoter back in New York who wants to uh, rent the Palisades along the Hudson River and have us jump into the water. But uh, that would not be an official jump, because you can't land on water, or anything soft like that.
16: Oh, I thought the object of the whole thing was just to live through the event. Yeah. I
17: didn't
15: know the uh, so I, uh, you landed on had anything to do with I it. I jump mostly on asphalt and concrete. But uh, you can jump on the natural ground too, providing it hasn't been softened by rain or moisture of any kind. Of How about AstroTurf, stuff like that? Oh, that's okay too. Providing the thorny grass isn't too tall to break your fall, break or fall. been softened by moisture, <laughs> Well,
16: I can see the, uh, the rules are pretty strict on that. Like if, you, uh, if you get low jumping accepted as an Olympic event, you'll have to do it from the window of a downtown office building, something yes,
15: like that. Yes, and that's not too satisfactory, yet, Biff, because uh, in case of a tie, then, you have to go up one story at a time, which is ten feet, see? So, no, I think it'd be much better if we could use a fire department ladder uh, you go up a little bit at a time. Uh,
16: <laughs> makes more sense. Yeah, it does. How many entrants from all over the world do you uh, plan would go into a thing like this, low jumping? Well, from the mail I've received,
15: there are two others. <laughs> There's, uh... There's a Tibetan who puts himself in a trance and jumps off mountains. Uh-huh. And there's another guy in France who's kind of flaky, too. All
16: right, well, there are two, and then you make three. There would be three of you in all, then.
15: Well, no, I'm decided not to compete. I figured it'd take a real fruitcake to think you could break that 57-foot, 8-inch record that I already hold, see? Yeah. And I've learned through experience that low jumping over 30 or 40 feet Give you a real headache. <laughs> so I decided who needs it? <laughs> well, I was going to say that at the outset of the interview, but
16: uh, you said it for me. Our guest in the sports room was Big Steve Werbler, and this is Biff Burns saying, Till next time, this is Biff Burns <laughs> saying so long. Thank you, Big Steve.
14: Bye.
0: as baby boomers, when we listened to radio, I guess you'd call it old-time radio now, oldies anyway, we listened to music more than we listened to anything else. And those were two big hit songs we used to listen to. One was called Brandy by Looking Glass. And the other one was uh, just a few years earlier. It was Sonny and Cher with their great big hit, I Got You, Babe. And if you're a baby boomer, you remember both of those songs. Now, OH! As you can hear from the music, it is time for Gunsmoke, everybody. Time to travel back to the Old West, the 1870s. Time to travel back to Dodge City, Kansas. Walking up Front Street, shoulder to shoulder, with Marshal Matt Dillon maintaining the law. I have a unique episode tonight. It was from the early days of Gunsmoke. This one was first broadcast on May the 2nd in 1953. So you'll hear some of the uh, older music and introductions and also the gunfire sound effect had not been developed nearly as uh, completely as it was just about a year later. This script was by John Meston. It's named Tiseta, and that is the name of a woman Really, she has very little to do with this storyline. But nonetheless, she is a, I guess, a principal character in the story. She really has very few lines. It's a unique story, and one of the things that I found unique about this one is I think of all of the episodes of Gunsmoke, it's the only time I remember Chester actually getting into a fast-draw gunfight. Now I know a couple of times he threatened it, and of course oftentimes he would be in gunfights with rifles or, uh, you know, when people were off at a distance, but I don't remember him ever standing face to face with a man and pulling his six-shooter trying to outdraw another individual. But it happens tonight, and so that's pretty unique. So here you go. This is Gunsmoke from January, no, it's from January, from May the 2nd, 1953. And this one is entitled To Satan.
1: Dillon, I never saw a street like that.
3: Huh? What do you mean, Chester?
1: Dusty, sir. Just plain dusty. It's only spring, and already the plaza's just vulgar with dust.
3: (laughs) Streets in Texas are all grass, Chester? No, sir, but they're better
1: than this. You'd think there'd be some way of fixing it.
3: Dodge is growing, Chester. Maybe someday it won't look so bad to you.
1: (laughs) I don't aim to live that long, sir.
3: Well, I'm glad you got that much figured out, anyway.
1: I surely have. Oh, now, wait. That's not what I meant, either.
3: <laughs> Don't let it worry you, Chester. Did you get those posters down to Mr. Hightower?
1: Yes, sir. He said they'll be ready about noon tomorrow.
3: All right. Pick them up, then, will you? Yes, sir. Hey,
1: oh, my goodness, Mr. Dillon, I nearly forgot. No? Well, forgot after, what? after I left Mr. Hightower's, I thought I'd just take a glass of beer. I... Had to get all that dust out of my throat. You know how bad it is walking around knee-deep in that stuff, and I was... Yeah, yeah, uh, all right,
3: Chester. Well, what is it you forgot?
1: (laughs) Well, sir, I dropped into the Texas Trail, and Miss Kitty was there, and she said she thinks there might be trouble over there before long, and she said to tell you.
3: Huh? What kind of trouble?
1: Oh, the usual thing. Some man fighting over a girl.
3: Well, you don't seem to be very worried about it.
1: I'm tired of people fighting. I wish they'd all just go away somewhere and kill each other off and have done with
3: it. <laughs> That'd be fine as long as they don't do it in Dodge. Well, come on, Chester. Let's go over and see what it's all about.
18: Tasseta's a new girl, Matt. She's shy as a flower. I don't know what she's doing here anyway.
3: Do you know the name of the man?
18: Dorgan, he says. I tried to get her away from him, but I I think she's too scared.
3: Yeah. Yeah, Maybe she likes him. Did you ever think of that?
18: I hope not. Anyway, he won't let anyone else dance with her. There's two over at the bar near Chester there. They've tried twice.
3: I know one of those men. The tall one. His name's Horn. Who is he? Yeah, he's a gunman. Pretty fast, too, so I've heard.
18: Well, I was over there with Tiseta last time they came up, and somehow, from the way they talked, I got the feeling they're more interested in Dorgan than her.
3: Uh, You mean they're trying to draw him into a fight?
18: That's my guess, Matt.
3: All right, Kenny. I'll see what I can do. Uh, Mr. Tiseta? Yes? I'm Matt Dillon. I'd uh, be proud if you'd dance with me.
18: Well, I... I I don't think I'd better.
10: Now, go ahead to say that's It's all right. You can dance with him.
18: Mr. Dorgan, you told those others that I... Hello, Marshal.
17: Hello, Horn. This here is Watson. Howdy, Marshal. How are you? what's on your mind, Horn? He just wanted to let you know, Marshal... If there's any trouble here, we ain't responsible. Leave me alone, there won't be any trouble. All we want, Marshal, is our turn with the girl here, and Dorgan's had her hog the whole evening. And that ain't fair, and that's all. <laughs>
10: <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
17: What's
3: funny, Marshal? Oh, you sound like a man of the church social. I'm trying to be peaceable about it, that's all. I've seen you when you didn't try, Horn. What are you looking for? An excuse to work this man into a gunfight?
10: He sure is, Marshal. And I ain't going to take much more from him or Watson either.
17: What's the real trouble between you? There's no trouble, Marshal. We just want to dance with that girl. That's all.
3: Mm hmm. You want to tell me, Dorgan?
10: Nothing, Marshal. Nothing.
3: All right. To say to. Yes, sir. Uh, go over there and sit with Kitty, will you? Now,
10: wait a minute, Marshal. to' my girl. I've been buying her drinks. She's staying right here.
3: Go ahead, Tosita. Go on over with Kitty. Well,
18: I, I don't know which you one... You just
3: is... go, Tosada. Nobody will stop you.
18: Well, all right, then. Thank you for the drinks, Mr. Dorgan.
10: Go on, beat it. Chester. You got a great way of handling things is all I can say.
1: What is it, Mr. Dillon?
10: Take their guns, Chester.
17: Oh, no, you don't. Shut hey. up, Watson. Were you going to let them do that? We ain't looking for trouble.
3: Now, you're smarter than I figured, Horn.
17: <laughs> now, am I, Marshal?
3: Get them, Chester.
17: Yes, sir. All
6: right. All right.
3: Your guns will be at the jail. You can pick them up in the morning when you leave town.
10: Leave town.
3: All three of you. Good night, gentlemen. Taking his gun from a man like Horn was the fastest way in the world to get him out of the saloons and off the streets and behind covers somewhere. There were too many men who might show up out of his past and suddenly make their claim on him. And Horn was the one that really mattered. Neither Dorgan or Watson looked like real gunmen. So I thought I'd been pretty smart. Till the next morning. I was just crossing the plaza when I ran into Kitty and Chester.
18: Matt! Matt, we've been trying to find you.
3: Oh, no, what's the matter, Kitty?
18: Mr. Seda. I don't know where she is. What? I looked in her room this morning and she'd gone. Nobody's seen her anywhere.
3: Well, maybe she went out to buy some clothes or something.
18: Oh, well, she was afraid to go out alone. I always had to go with her. I just know something's happened to her.
3: Oh, like what?
18: Dorgan. He was real sweet on her, Matt, and I don't trust him at all.
1: Oh? Dorgan come by the office real early, Mr. Dillon. I gave him his gun, and he vamoosed he was in a big hurry to go someplace.
3: And I told him to leave town this morning.
1: Well, you
18: didn't tell him to take the Seda with him.
3: Uh, did they get back together last night?
18: Sure. Just as soon as Horn and Watson left. I couldn't stop it.
3: I see Uh, tell me, Kitty, can she ride?
18: Oh, no. I asked her to go out with me once.
3: All right. There was a stage west this morning. Go see if they got on it, will you, Chester?
18: All right,
3: sir. Kitty, if she did leave with Dorgan, maybe it's because she wanted to. Oh,
18: maybe. She wouldn't say anything about him last night one way or the other. I told you, I think she's afraid of him, Matt, but even if she did want to go... Well, she isn't his kind, that's all.
3: Well, that may be, Kitty, but... It's not the law's job to chaperone every girl that hits Dodge.
18: What if she didn't want to go, Matt? What if he forced her to?
3: Well, that'd be different. A whole lot different.
18: You bet it would. They was on it, Mr. Dillon.
4: The
1: agent described them exactly. Left an hour ago, right on time. I knew it. I knew it. Uh,
18: Will I get our horses,
3: No, no. Wait a minute, Chester. Dorgan might put up a fight, and if he does, we can't shoot around that girl.
18: Well, then how can you stop him, Matt?
3: Well... Somehow, I don't figure Dorgan is a really brave man. I think we can bluff him. He might try to fight two of us, but if there were more, say, maybe a dozen men... What... You mean we'll take a posse? Yeah, well, this time it might just work, Chester. But I'll pick them. Men I can trust not to do any hasty shooting. Uh, Chester, you go round up uh, Arnold Winters and uh, uh, John Kemp, Marty Walter and Bob Gast, and uh, I'll get the rest of them. All right, sir. And tell them we'll all meet at the jail in 20 minutes.
1: Everybody's here, Mr. Dillon.
3: All right, I'm coming, Chester.
17: I'm at.
3: All right, men. All right, listen to me now. Now, I've picked you men because I know that you're steady. Every one of you. Now, there's a girl on that stage, and whatever happens, we can't return fire. Is that clear?
17: Yeah, Yeah, sure. sure. All right.
3: I'll figure out how we're going to stop them when we get there. Marshal! Well, what are you doing here? Hold
17: it. Marshal, me and Watson heard you needed help.
3: Thought I told you to get out of town, Horn.
17: Oh, we just want to be sure you got Dorgan before we left, Marshal.
3: I don't need your help. And don't you be here when I get back, either one of you.
17: Well, like that, Washington. All right, men. All
5: right, let's go.
1: To coming, Mr. Dillon.
3: All right, Chester. Men, spread out in a half circle. When the stage comes out of those cottonwoods, Chester and I will ride forward and stop her. And then you close in around us. Got it.
10: Okay.
3: All right, let's go. Whoa, whoa.
17: Whoa. What's the matter, Marshal?
3: It's all right, Jim. I just want to talk to a couple of your passengers. You, Dorgan, come on out.
10: You try anything, to to be right in front of me, Marshal. I
3: figured that, Dorgan. Come on out anyway.
10: All right, it get out. You stand right here, to say and don't move. Now, what's on your mind, Marshal...
3: I want to know if Tosita's here because she wants to be. That's all.
10: Tell him, Tosita. Right, tell him.
3: Just tell me the truth, Tosita. If you want to go with him, you may. But if he's forcing you to go, then we're here to take you back to Dodge.
10: You wouldn't want her death on what? your conscience, would you, Marshal? Well, no, please
18: don't kill me. I'll tell him. I came because I wanted to. There.
3: That's a good answer to say to...
10: And go on back to Dodge and leave us alone.
3: I guess you didn't hear the same thing I did, Dorgan.
10: I'm warning you, You haven't got
3: a chance. How long do you think you can use her for cover? Now, I got 12 men here, Dorgan, and we'll follow you from here to California if necessary. Isn't that right, men? And if she should get killed, I'll just let you imagine what we'll do to you. Now, you drop your gun, belt right where you are and step forward. And do it now. All right, get his gun, Chester. Yes, sir.
6: All
3: right, one of you men get rid of your guns and put Dorgan up behind you. Mr. Dillon, what are we going to do with this Ada? She can't ride anyway, especially in those clothes. Well, the Bledsoe place is a couple of miles from here... Uh, go over there and borrow their buckboard, Chester, and for your trouble, we'll let you drive her back to town.
1: Yes, sir. My. Well, you wait right here, Mr. Sader, and I'll be back in no time at all. Mr. Dillon.
3: Well, Chester, Uh, what time did you get back with Tussedo last night, Chester?
1: (laughs) Oh, now, a buckboard ain't like a horse. You can't drive it a lope all the way.
3: (laughs) That's all right, Chester. Well, what have you got there? Dorgan's breakfast. You'll probably have to wake him up. He hasn't made a sound so far. Oh, there are the keys on the desk. Yes, sir.
1: Mr. Dillon? Yeah. Come
8: here, quick.
3: What? Open the cell, Chester. Hurry. He might still be alive. I got a knife. All right. Cut him free. I'll hold it. been dead a long time.
1: Now, who'd have thought he'd go hang himself? cell?
3: He didn't, Chester. What? There's no rope in his cell. Somebody called him over here to the window, knocked him in the head and slipped the rope around his neck and tied him tight to the bars. This isn't suicide, it's murder.
1: Horn. Horn and that fellow Watson, they did it.
3: Well, they're the only ones I know who've been wanting him dead. Will we go arrest them? Yeah, they just go free again. I got no evidence the court would accept.
1: I'll bet those two don't think any more strangling a man than shooting a wolf and throwing his skin over a fence.
3: They're killers, Chester. But right now they got nobody to kill. Except maybe me. When I found out that Horn and Watson were still in Dodge, I figured that they were probably waiting for me to run them out. And that they'd be glad for the excuse if I did. Leaving Dorgan's murder behind them. Instead, I did nothing and I said nothing. Hoping it would sand their nerves some. Maybe drive them to a bottle and some loose talk. That night, pretending there was nothing in the world on our minds, Chester and I walked into the Texas trail. Sure is crowded tonight, Mr. Dillon. Yeah.
1: Say, there's to say to see her?
3: You're like a fall hog after ripe acorns, Chester.
1: Well, now, my gracious, it wouldn't be polite for me not to say hello, would it?
3: <laughs> I'll see you later. Uh, that fellow who just left, is he coming back, Kitty? Uh,
18: he went broke. <laughs> Sit down, man. Uh. You drinking?
3: No, not tonight.
18: Oh, expecting trouble, huh? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Look at Chester and just say to I sure wish this place were quieter. I'd give anything to know what they're saying.
3: It may get noisier. What? Look over there. Watson just came in.
18: Oh. Say, he's drunk, Matt. He's real drunk. Yeah. He's just going to start trouble again. Look, he spotted to Seder.
3: I don't see Horn.
18: Oh, Horn hasn't been in tonight.
5: I
3: said I was going to dance with her. You're
1: a local drunk, Watson. Get out of here and leave the lady alone. <laughs> what
17: lady? You take
18: that back. Matt.
17: Are you from Texas, mister? Yes. Yeah. Yes, I am. Well, now, if I was from Texas, I'd certainly keep it to myself.
1: You're wrong, Watson. There's a lot of good, decent people in Texas.
17: Maybe, since you left. It's a wonder you can even get a woman like this. Don't you be judging the people of Texas. Uh.
18: Matt. Uh.
3: All right, get out of the way. Let me through here.
18: Uh. He
1: he drew on me, Mr. Dillon. I was only going to fight him. I didn't think he'd draw.
3: Everybody saw it, Chester. He had his gun out first.
1: I shot him twice. He didn't even fire. How come he didn't kill now me?
3: Now, take it easy, Chester. To say to... Him. Go get him a drink, will you? Yes, sir. Do right away. Uh, Watson? Uh, Watson? Little Texas fella... He shot me. Watson. Watson, listen to me. Did you strangle
17: Dorgan? Dorgan. We killed him. Me and Horn. Right in jail. There it comes
3: If I take Horn alive, I'll call on some of you men as witnesses to Watson's confession here. Well, uh, a couple of you, take him out back.
18: Yeah.
3: Chester, you all right? You, you look peaked.
18: I got him a whiskey, sir, just like you said.
3: Drink it down, Chester. Chester. Mr. Dillon?
1: Yeah. Mr. Dillon, if he hadn't have been drunk, I couldn't have shot him.
3: Well, that may be, Chester. But don't forget one thing, drunk as he was, he drew to kill you. And if you'd given him another second, he would have. You had to shoot him. It was self-defense, pure and simple.
1: Yes, sir, that's sure true, but
3: I... Now, you stay here for a while. I'll be out in the plaza.
1: Casada, get me one more drink.
3: Word of the gunfight would spread fast in Dodge. And the word of the dying man's confession even faster. Wherever Horn was, I knew he'd hear about it. And since he was a gunman of an entirely different breed from men like Watson and Dorgan, it could be depended on that instead of running, he'd shoot it out with me. It was a simple matter of vanity, and there was no way to stop him. The only thing I could do was wait. Expectantly, the plaza cleared. But before Horn showed up, Chester came out of the Texas Trail and walked over to me.
1: Mr. Dillon?
3: Are you all right now, Chester?
1: I'm fine. But, say, I just heard that Horn's gone and got himself a shotgun.
3: Now, is that so?
1: You can't meet him like this. I'll go get you one out of the office.
3: No. But,
1: Mr. Dillon, a shotgun.
3: I know. But if Horn's done that, he's lost his nerve. It means he can't face me any other way.
1: Yeah, but you haven't got a chance against a shotgun.
3: Well, we'll soon find out. There he comes.
1: Oh. He does have a shotgun, Mr. Dillon.
3: All right, get off the street, Chester.
1: I don't like leaving. Go
3: on. Yes, sir. Evening, Marshal. You're well armed, Horn.
17: Yeah, ain't I?
3: This is the first time, isn't it?
17: First time what?
3: You had to get behind a shotgun.
17: I ain't taking no chances, Marshal.
3: Sure. But from what I've heard, that never bothered you before. Meaning? You're fast enough with a six-gun to have lived this long, Horn. You must be pretty good. But you're through now. You've lost your nerve. You're not a gunman anymore. You're just ordinary dirt common.
17: That's enough of that.
3: I could find a dozen men like you in any saloon in town. It was different before, Horn. You kind of stood out a little. Nobody's going to worry about you after this.
17: You think not? You think I need this shotgun? Of
3: course you need it. Everybody can see that.
17: I ain't scared of you, Marshal. I ain't scared of no man alive.
3: Talk's cheap.
17: I ain't talking! Yeah, now. I ain't got no shotgun. Now, don't you tell me I'm scared.
3: You don't have to draw a horn. You can still take your chances in court.
17: You was right, Marshal. I was scared. I ain't no more.
3: Look, I'm giving you a chance. Why don't you take it?
17: Never mind.
4: Dillon? Yeah.
3: Yeah, Chester. It's been a long day. Let's go somewhere and try and forget it.
12: Gunsmoke, under the direction of Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. Tonight's story was especially written for Gunsmoke by John Meston, with music composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Featured in the cast were Tom Tully, Lawrence Dobkin, Paul Dubov, and Lillian Bias. Harley Bear is Chester and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Gunsmoke is heard by our troops overseas through the facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. Join us again next week as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal likes to bring law and order out of the wild violence of the West in Gunsmoke.
0: Tom Tully. He was a really good actor. And of course, he went on and did movies and television. He was a pretty principal character in the movie The Kane Mutiny. I remember him as playing Lieutenant Matt Grabe on the, uh, is it Grabe or Greb? I guess it was Greb on the TV version of the lineup, which was also a great radio show. And he, if you look at his uh, resume of films and television, he was just very, very prolific in the 60s. Well, even in the 50s. He had a regular recurring role on Make Room for Daddy. Well, actually, he played different characters. It wasn't the same character. He goes all the way back to the Zane Grey Theater. He played uh, Alfred Hitchcock Presents. He was in Tales of Wells Fargo, remember, with uh, Dale Robertson. He was in The Untouchables. He was in Burke's Law, Perry Mason several times. Very prolific actor, and I love that rough voice of his. He could play a really, like a grandfatherly type, but boy, he could play a cold cookie too. A really cold cookie. There's one episode of Gunsmoke, and I can't think of the title now, that he plays one of the meanest characters that you're ever going to hear on Gunsmoke.
19: What in the world? come over you Seems we never get along oh. Every night you ever change your mind. If you do, I'll still be here, dear, waiting, longing for you. All my life. It's just not right, oh, what in the world's come over you Could you ever change your mind, if you do, I'll still be here, dear, waiting long You so now alone in my room each night. My heart cries, it's just not right. Oh, what in the world's come over you, you're still my angel from above. you my one and only, only real love.
0: Remember that one? That was Jack Scott. Oh boy, that one's got to go back to the early 60s. I remember dancing to that at Friday Nighters. When I was in ninth grade at Hughes Junior High School. Jack Scott, and what in the world's come over you? <laughs> Well, folks, that's going to kick things in the head for another week. But we'll be back in two weeks with an all-new show. And for those of you that subscribe to the podcast or go in and listen to the podcast, uh, we'll have an archive show next week. So don't worry. We will be back and we'll have another great lineup of old-time radio shows. And in the meantime, I hope you do go into BoomerBoulevard.com. And you can get all the information there on how to subscribe to the podcast and have the show delivered directly to your mail. And I have mentioned in the past that we're going to try to start doing a daily podcast. I may be putting that off for another month. I might wait until uh, the end of May to start doing that for scheduling reasons. But in the meantime, we'll keep producing what we have been producing. And then we're going to get that set up. All right. I guess that's it. I I am so glad you came along. I hope you enjoyed Chester's uh, tacos and beans and rice. They were delicious. It looks like everybody ate everything up. There's only one lone taco sitting left there in the dish, and that one's mine, Chester. <laughs> that one's mine because I never got one. All right. Yeah. No. You put it aside. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, everybody, that's going to do it. This is Bob Bro. I am so glad you stopped by, and (laughs) I'm so glad you met.